listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. This morning, I uh, want you uh, to consider the fact that today is a day of, of ultimates, a day of extremes. Let me just uh, briefly share with you very specifically what those extremes are. We either celebrate the greatest miracle and the most significant event in human history this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or we have believed the greatest lie ever told. Think about that. Either Jesus is alive and we are celebrating his resurrection, or we gathered here this morning have believed the greatest lie that has ever been told. If Jesus rose from the dead, our sins are forgiven. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no explanation for sin. We have no solution for sin. And yet we are left living in a world of 8 billion people and every one of us knows something ain't right. Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is alive now and forever, and his resurrection is the basis for our experience of life now and in eternity, if he did. But if he did not rise from the dead, this is all that there is. And quite frankly, we are all spiritually dead. There is nothing to live for now, and there is no hope beyond the last gasp of air that we will take in our human existence. So these are extremes, and I don't know where you are on the spectrum as we consider those extremes, but, but I do want you to contemplate with me from John chapter 20 this morning. Uh, last week, we looked at the triumphal entry. Friday night, we looked at the death of Jesus. He was in the tomb when we left here Friday night after our gathering. And in this morning in John chapter 20, we've been in the gospel of John. In John chapter 20, I want you to look in verses 1 to 31. And if you uh, get a, a little different perspective on the story, you can consider it in Matthew 28. I'm not asking you to turn there this morning or Mark chapter 16 or Luke chapter 24 to get the, the full picture of all that's happening here. But John, for his purposes, is narrowing, narrowing the scope on just a few people as we go through this verses. Notice them because I think they're important for us to consider this morning. John chapter 20, verse number one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, and if you want to get a picture of what's happening here, if you want to enter into the story, the word ran throughout this is they ran uh, as fast as they could. They were, they were giving it their all. They were getting with it. Um, they, were, they were getting after it while they were running. And so she ran, verse 2, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who's actually writing this, John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She immediately jumps to this conclusion when she sees the tomb empty. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and the other disciple was obviously younger than Peter, number one. And number two, he was proud of the fact that he could run faster than Peter. He points that out here in the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they were going toward the tomb. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but not for long. 
But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Obviously, a young person that had to brag about outrunning an older person, right? If you outrun somebody older than you, that's not a big deal. Occasionally, I'll go out to eat with somebody younger than me, and I want to pay the bill, and I tell them this is going to be the embarrassing side of that story. First of all, if you don't let me pay it, I'm going to whoop you, and the word is going to be that an old man whooped a young man, right? And that's just not a good thing. It's not a big deal if a young man outruns an old man. But for some reason, John wanted to include that in here so that we would know that he was a fast runner. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, he folded up a, uh, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, the guy who's writing, John, the fast runner, who had reached the tomb first, he had to point that out, also went in, and he saw and believed. Whatever it was that he saw when he entered into the tomb didn't cause him to jump to the conclusion that Jesus had been stolen from the tomb. But whatever he saw when he entered into the tomb caused him to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. It had been an exhausting few days. Uh, they probably just couldn't take another step. We now move into Mary's experience, and we look at, uh, we're, we're first of all looking at the, the myth of the resurrection, but secondly, we're looking at the certainty of the resurrection, right? And that begins in verse number 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one on the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene then went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We move to the second scene of the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That evening, Jesus goes into a room that is locked where the disciples are. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Why should they have peace? Because Jesus has died and paid for their sin and been resurrected from the grave. He's showing them the evidence that demands that they have this, this holistic peace that consumes their life. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, reminiscent of Genesis 2, when the Lord breathed life into us and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of anyone, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
The third scene, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. He had eight days to stew on that. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. If you're here today, Jesus would say that to you. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He is alive. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And if you believe today, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about you. Verses 30 and 31. Finally, we see, we go from the mystery to the certainty to the summary of the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus has spoken these things, and John has written these things so that those of us who read will understand and comprehend and believe and have life, be taken from death to life this morning. Consider those three things that I've already mentioned. Number one, the mystery of the resurrection. And I just want to hit some highlights. There are 31 verses here, and I want to read a section out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just to add to the certainty of the resurrection this morning. As we look at the mystery of the resurrection, in verses 1 to 4, I want you to see the discovery. This is the first day of the week. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 5. This is reminiscent of a new creation. This is reminiscent of God doing something that is quite frankly very unique but has also been predicted throughout creation. This is significant. And the, the person in the text is Mary Magdalene. And she's mentioned, some say she's mentioned up to 14 times, maybe directly or indirectly in the Word of God. There are five different Marys in the Scripture. And sometimes it can get confusing unless you take the time to do uh, a study of it. But here's the thing that we need to understand right from the get-go in John chapter 20. If you decided that you wanted to create a story or concoct a story about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to fool everybody, the last person that you would put at the center of it to be the primary spokesman moving forward to the disciples and the first person that Jesus would show himself to, the last person that you would put in your story if you wanted to convince or fool anybody would be Mary Magdalene, a woman who had seven demons running through her life. First of all, you wouldn't put a woman, and secondly, you wouldn't put a crazy woman. Because no doubt, if you've had seven demons, people looked at you and would say, you are crazy. Something's wrong with her. And there's just something about our approach to life that never lets people move beyond our initial understanding of them apart from Jesus Christ. But this woman is a close follower of Jesus Christ. We know that from Luke chapter 8. She's traveling with him. In fact, there were several significant women that had a significant role in the ministry of Jesus and even providing financial support Mary gets there, and the first thing that she realizes or thinks anyway is that somebody robbed the grave. Robbing graves was something that was very common in those days. In fact, it was so common that they made grave robbing a capital 
offense. So as soon as she gets there, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty. Obviously, she jumps to the conclusion that the grave has been robbed. And when she realized that, she took off running and ran as fast as she could, and she found Peter and she found John, and they come running back to the tomb. So that is the discovery. She discovers the tomb empty, but secondly, I want you to consider with me the curiosity, and we see that in verses 5 to 10. Peter gets there, and, and if, if you will, just let me read through that again. They were running together, verse 4, and stopping to look in. Now, the word look here is important because the general Greek word for look is just this word, blepo, to see. But, but for some reason, John gives us this word, thereo. You say, thereo, what are we getting, a Greek lesson this morning? Well, the, the word thereo is where we get the English word theorize. John, John's, the wheels, uh, the wheels of Peter's mind begin to turn and he begins to think. He's looking around. He's looking at the evidence. He's looking at the stone rolled away. He's walking in and he's looking around and he's trying to put these pieces together. And as he puts these pieces together, he's trying to come to some conclusions. You say, why in the world would you point at that out this morning? Because believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just something that people who are unintellectual believe. Here is a guy taking the time to look at this thing intellectually, intellectually to look at the objective evidence, to, to, to use the reasoning of his mind as he looked at it. And he then, in his critical thinking, comes to conclusions. That's what the word theoreo means. It means to look at, to behold, to experience, to discern, to partake of, to enter into. So believing in the resurrection is not just for people who are not intellectual, who take a blind leap of faith and who just don't have good sense and don't know any better. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for people who are thinking critically about the evidence and for those who say, I'll tell you what, I don't believe in the resurrection because smart people don't believe in the resurrection. Most of those people haven't even considered the facts. They just heard somebody who they thought was smart say what smart people ought to believe, and they want to be smart, so they say what smart people that they think are smart are, are saying, and so they just regurgitate it. But here's a guy that's been with Jesus who thinks he's dead, who doesn't recognize that he's resurrected from the grave, and he walks into this tomb, and what he's looking at is not a tomb that is completely empty. He's looking at a tomb where Jesus is not. But if the grave had been robbed, and robbing a grave is a capital offense, they would have not have gone in and neatly unwrapped the, the grave wrappings and would not have taken the face covering off and folded it up and laid it to the side. The setting was just too neat. It was too clean. In fact, it looked like whoever it was that was in the tomb did it themselves clearly unwrapped it or came through it. Everything was just too neat in the tomb. And Peter is having, uh, hmm, what happened here, I wonder? What happened here? And so we see this curiosity that I think is a healthy curiosity. And John walked in and John believed. John's like, Hold on just a minute. These are not grave robbers. He looked at the clothes. He looked at the face covering. And John immediately believed and probably had some recollection of what Jesus said. So that is the, the mystery of the resurrection in the first 10 
verses. The second thing I want you to consider is the certainty of the resurrection in verses 11 to 29. And I want to introduce to you four scenes. The first scene, scene one, is the appearance to Mary in verses 10 to 18. We've already read Mary is quite frankly hysterical. She is in distress. She is disappointed. Mary was robbed of the opportunity to naturally grieve over Jesus. Grief is is a natural necessity. It's something that we absolutely need when someone that we love or who has loved us dies. And that is what she's doing. But now she can't grieve because someone is stolen the body of Jesus and she can't go through a proper process. And so her adrenaline is flowing. She has already run to let Peter and John know, and she's already run back. And now she's standing here and she doesn't have any answers. And obviously she is weeping uncontrollably. We read the dialogue that she's had there and the wondering that she has had there. I think think we need to see her in her distress. I think we need to see her turn and Jesus is there and she doesn't even recognize it. I just think we need to stop there for a second. I just think we need to just take a deep breath and try try to let that soak in for a second. Jesus was was right there with her in in her distress and she absolutely could not see him She thought Jesus was dead, but Jesus was alive, and she was fixing to find out for sure. And here's the cool thing. Jesus knew why she was weeping, right? Jesus knew why she was weeping, and Jesus knew who she was seeking. And it's just interesting that Jesus comes to her in curiosity. Jesus has all the answers, folks. But he comes to her in curiosity. He comes to her and gives her an opportunity to move from the hysteria and the distress and the, the, the grieving. And he asks her a question. He says, why are you weeping? He knows why she's weeping. Who are you seeking? He knows who she's seeking. I, I think that would be good for us as we talk with people. Yes, we have the answers. But let us engage them. Let us be curious. Let us reach out to their heart. Let us reach out to their mind. Let us engage their thinking. Jesus comes and says, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And they engage in this conversation. Again, she thinks Jesus is dead. She thinks his body has been taken away. She she didn't say he's resurrected. She said somebody came and took a lifeless dead Jesus, lifted him up out of the grave and moved him somewhere else. Where have you taken him? He's dead. He's powerless. He's not coming back. Where have you taken him? I simply want to have the opportunity to grieve. But then she turns and then she understands who Jesus is who Jesus is. Have you had a moment like that? Has there been a time in your life when maybe you doubted, when maybe you didn't know, but when you saw Jesus for who he was and you believed? That's where Mary is. That's the greatest place in the world that any of us could be. That is is radically transforming. I think the thing that we need to point out about Mary quickly as we move from scene one to scene two is that Mary Magdalene knew spirituality like no other. 
You don't have seven demons inside of you and not know true spirituality. Her life was overpowered and dominated by demonic forces. But Jesus, who was an even greater power, came and set her free from the demonic sources. And instead of being dominated and being used and being manipulated and being ruined by sin and demonic forces, Jesus now comes with the power of God and she experiences a love that would not let her go. And there was nothing like it. She went from knowing the power of sin and Satan to knowing the power of the Son of God. And she knew one who was the personification of love and joy and hope and kindness and beauty and concern and compassion and care and peace. You see, this woman, Mary Magdalene, knew death. But now she knows life at the full. And she was convinced that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. That's scene one. Jesus reveals himself to Mary. Jesus is like, all right, go tell, go tell the disciples. Scene two, we find in verses 19 to 23. And, and I think it's interesting just to, just to point out a couple of things. These guys are scared, yet Jesus has said, um, my brothers, <laughs> my brothers, here's Mary Magdalene and a few of the women coming to the tomb. Peter and John had to, had to be, had, they had to go knock on the door and, hey, the tomb is empty. And so they go running. But here these guys are. They're hiding out. They're scared. But Jesus still calls them, tells Mary, you go, you go to my brothers and you tell them. And you, you tell them that my father and their father. This is the beauty of life with Jesus. They are adopted into the family of God. They are his so he comes to the disciples and he enters the room. And I've already mentioned he shows them the wounds. He shows them the reason for the peace that he is telling them to have this holistic peace that consumed every, consumes every fiber of their being that transcends all circumstances. You have peace with God the Father because of the work that I have done. My work has been completed and then he says, as the Father hath sent me, even so I am sending you. And I, and I thought about that as I read that this morning because um, I, don't, I don't know of many believers that don't want their life to count for the kingdom of, of heaven. But, but here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I thought. When you follow Jesus, you don't get to write the script. Right? When you follow Jesus, you don't get to write the script. Now, a lot of us want to write the script, and we want Jesus to bless it. You bless it, Lord. I've got a script for my life. Many of you here today would think it would be absolutely foolish if you didn't have a plan for your life. But I'm telling you, when Jesus comes and you say, I'm going to follow you, we don't get to write the script. That might mean you go from making more money to less money. <laughs> You're like, all right, I'm out. How can you live like that? That, that, that might mean that you go from a place that you love to a place that you don't like. It might mean that, but now most folks are out because we develop our plans around the desires of our heart and we want God to bless them. And we think naturally that life is about more money and that, that life is about being in a place and having the things that make me comfortable. Jesus said to these guys, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Would he say anything different to us this morning? And him sending us demands that he write the script, not us. 
I think we need to think about that. He also breathes on them. Don't try to do the work of Jesus in the energy of the flesh. That gets us in trouble every time. And, and he also talks about the forgiveness of sins. And if, if you forgive the sins of any, uh, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I would say look at that in the grand context of everything that Scripture has to say about forgiveness. And I would not use that text either to demand forgiveness or to deny forgiveness. Let us look at Scripture this morning. That's seen too as Jesus addresses these Men. The third scene is Thomas, and I think it's important that we consider Thomas here for um, just a minute. We give Thomas a bad rap sometimes. He's doubting Thomas. Here's, here's demon-possessed Mary. Here's doubting Thomas. This is the crowd that Jesus has chosen to be with himself. These, these are the people that we're going to build the kingdom of heaven on earth on. These are the people that are going to be the foundation of the church. And so here's doubting Thomas, and doubting Thomas no doubt was all in. When Jesus showed up, and Jesus said, let's go, and Jesus said, let's do, and Jesus said, go, go here, do this, Thomas was all in, following Jesus every step of the way. But I'm telling you, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and Jesus didn't ascend to the throne and become the king and overthrow the Romans, evidently, I believe, I believe it was a gut punch to Thomas. And Thomas, in that moment, probably made a vow. This sounds like a vow. Thomas made a vow. Thomas said, I'll tell you what. I'm never going to let anybody hurt me like that again. He said, I'm never going to trust anybody again. Right? Never gonna, never gonna let anybody take advantage of me like that again. I'm never gonna let somebody grab a hold of my emotions and my heart and pull me in and then let me down. I'm never going to let that happen again. Honestly, folks, some of us are in a mess because we've made a foolish vow. Right? Maybe, maybe you've been hurt. Maybe your husband hurt you. Maybe your wife hurt you. Maybe your kids hurt you. Maybe your parents hurt you. Maybe your boss hurt you. Maybe somebody just hurt you really bad. And you said, I am never, ever going to be hurt again. And here's what you're doing from that point forward. You're making everybody else around you pay for what somebody else did because you made a vow and you're literally living out of contempt instead of being able to receive the truth that is happening right around you because quite frankly, Thomas is standing here with about 10 folks that have seen Jesus. And, and they're like, hey, we saw him. What do you need to establish fact? You need a couple of witnesses. I don't believe any of you. I don't believe any of you. And, and be careful. Fact is not established. Truth is not established on the basis of whether or not you believe it. Right? It's like, well, I don't believe it. Therefore, it's not true. Every one of you are liars. I don't believe a word you say, and I'm not going to believe it. And I would just, I would beg you this morning, examine your heart. Is there a place in your life where you have made a vow and now you're living out of that vow and your life is filled with contempt and the energy that is coming out of you is contempt and you could even be, you could e e even be approached with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you say, I'm not going to believe that. I'll tell you what, I believed somebody one time and I'm never going to believe anybody again. I got hurt one time before and I'm never going to be hurt again. If, if you're never going to be hurt again, you are dead. 
Because to be alive means that you're going to experience joy and you are going to experience pain. And there's no such thing as being alive without pain. And Thomas was trying, I believe, to protect himself from pain. And here's what I want you to understand. Jesus didn't say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, dude. If that's the way you're going to be, you just be that way. You may be here today and you, you may be hard-hearted and you may be hard-headed or you may be trying to protect yourself from ever getting hurt again. And Jesus is not saying, well, you just stay that way. Here comes Jesus. I think the text said eight days later. Peace be unto you. Yo, Thomas, right here, dude. I don't know what he had to do. If he had a seam in his, he's like, all right, put your hand right here. What grace. You say, man, my life's a mess. I've denied Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm filled with contempt and rage, and Jesus has no use for me. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. There is good news. Jesus is pursuing us in our vow-making and in our contempt and in our daring him to prove himself to us. That's scene three. Scene four, I just want to read 1 Corinthians to you this morning. Listen, listen to the word of God, and then I'm going I'm to draw some conclusions, and, and hopefully um, you'll, t- you'll take some, 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 something home with you today. But listen to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a public document. Here, here's, here's what I, I'm trying to get you to see. First of all, there's the mystery, and, and there is this, this discovery, and then there is this guy that is curious. What am I seeing? What am I looking at? And he's trying to figure it out in his mind. He's trying to rationalize it. He's trying to look at it intellectually. And he comes down to this conclusion that even after Jesus had ascended to heaven and he lived a life in ministry, he was willing to die for Jesus Christ. He was willing to die for Jesus. Peter. He was willing to die for the sake of the gospel. So, so here, here's, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at the mystery. Secondly, we're looking at the certainty. The certainty, scene one, Mary Magdalene. Scene two, the disciples minus Thomas. Scene three, the disciples with Thomas. Scene four, I want to take you further ahead into the church to a public document. A public document. This is not some secret document that, that, that a bunch of people that, that were fringe um, you know, fringe, in, uh, fringe, fringe thinkers or weirdos. This is a public document. Listen to this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's, that's Peter who we're talking about here, and then to the twelve, we're talking about scene, scene two here, scene three, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. They can come and refute this if it's not true. 500, most of them are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles and I'm worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not. I, But by the grace of God that was with me, whether 
then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so he's giving us this, this evidence for the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, if, if you'll go to, to verse 30 of, of John chapter 20, and, and we'll, just, we'll just touch on this. Now, um, finally, we see the summary of the gospel of John. Now, Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the gospel of John is written, so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead. The difference between a saved person and a lost person is not that a saved person sins any less, but that we have been made alive by Christ and we have a new nature. And it is out of that new nature that we live differently. I was talking to my wife this week and I said, you know, sanctification, we think of sanctification as I used to have 10 sins and now I've got five sins, right? And so I'm being sanctified because I'm sinning less than I used to sin and that's not what sanctification is. Sanctification is becoming more like Christ. Sanctification is not counting my sins because I'll tell you what I will do if I believe sanctification is about me sinning less. I'll just figure out a way in my humanity to hide or redefine my sin. You know, sanctification is not about going from watching porn to watching Yellowstone, right? I'm doing better. Great, great, make a list, cross some stuff out, and you'll be as lost as you could possibly be. Being saved is having the life of Christ in you, and then the more I become like Christ, that is the sanctification process, is not me making a list. You, are, you, 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 are you saying it's okay to sin? No, I'm not saying it's okay to sin. But I'm saying the goal is not to have a list that I'm crossing off, Praise God, right? Praise me. I'm doing amazing. No. I want to become more like Jesus. And as I become more like Jesus, it's the new nature that deals with the issues of sin in my life. Don't miss that. So the difference is that apart from Christ, I'm in death. And in Christ, I am in life. And it's life. And it's that life that transforms us. But anyway, let me, let me just, uh, just offer you uh, a few things um, by way of conclusion, why should you believe in the resurrection? Why should you believe in the resurrection? Let me offer this to you this morning. Number one, the love that you long for can only be satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The love that you long for can only be satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's not talk about you. Let's talk about Mary Magdalene. Not, nothing defines us quite like what's wrong with us, right? Nothing defines us quite like what's wrong with us. I, I go back to my hometown where I grew up, and somebody will walk up, and they'll say, are you still preaching? And, and I've told you this before, and I'm just like, no, I'm robbing banks and killing people. What do you think I'm doing? Because they expected me to quit a long time ago. 
right? Like, I know he ain't going to make it. Look, 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 at, look at what he used to be, and he ain't going to get very far from that. Nothing defines us quite like what is wrong with us. And here she is with seven demons. But here's what you and I need to understand. understand. Jesus ran her down. Jesus saved her. Jesus changed her. Jesus invited her to be a significant part of his ministry and mission. He died for her sins. He filled her with his spirit. He represents her as her advocate, I I thought about that this week. When Jesus represents us as our advocate, if you go into the courtroom, he says, you sit down, you shut up, I'll do the talking. That's good news. Don't say a word. I'm here to represent you. I'll do the talking. And you know what we need to do sometimes? We need to listen to what Jesus says about us. There's an accuser. He's on the other side of the room. He said, let me tell you about this person. Jesus says, well, let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you who they are because they are in me. And you're not getting to them. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus was her advocate. Jesus is preparing a place for her. Jesus is coming back to get her. Jesus is taking her with him to heaven to be with him for all eternity. And here is a woman who was filled with demons and used and uh, abused in whatever demons do in our interior world. And now she has gone from being possessed by seven demons to being fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room wants to be fully known. Every one of us wants to be fully accepted. You say, I I, I don't think so. Certainly, every one of us, everywhere we go, is constantly trying to reinvent ourselves to make those that are around us, to make ourselves pleasing to those that are around us so that we can be accepted. And Jesus died so that we could be accepted. And there is no love like the love of Jesus Christ. And this woman finds herself there at the tomb knowing that no one ever loved her like Jesus loved her. And he is now gone and her life will be forever changed. But then she recognized that because he rose from the dead that his love for her was even greater. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. You may be sitting here and you may be be like Thomas and you may be obstinate and you may have vowed a vow. But I want you to open your heart this morning and let you know that the love you long for can only be satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I compel you this morning to believe in the resurrection. Secondly, the truth that you long for can only be supplied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you this morning to believe in the unprovable or the irrational. The resurrection of Jesus is intellectual. The resurrection of Jesus is rational. Someone would say, well, I only believe in the things that can stand the test of the scientific method. That, that, that is, people say that, right? And, and here's where it was popularized. We're like, back during COVID, they're like, follow the science. Get a shot, right? And another one, and another one, and another one. Just follow the science. That's all somebody has to do is say, well, I don't believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is very scientific. What in the world do you believe in? You believe in yourself? How scientific is that? I mean, I mean we, we've, we've got to come to grips with the fact that we don't even understand what the scientific method is, but you can't say that you've applied the scientific method to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The truth that you long for can only be supplied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question you have to answer apart from him is what will you do with your sin? Someone has said this, secular people are in a strange position of feeling like sinners but having no answer for it. Secular people, people without Jesus, are in a strange position of feeling like sinners without having a name for it. Another writer said, Christianity tells a true story about humanity which makes sense of all the stories that humanity tells about itself. And we hear all of these stories. How do all of these stories of humanity make any sense at all? They don't make sense until we come to grips with the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we cannot save ourselves from our sins. But Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died for our sin. He died our death in our place. And Jesus Christ rose from the grave victorious so that we could be free from sin and we long to be free from sin. Another writer said, there are absolute, listen to this, there are absolute moral norms embedded in the universe and your soul made in the image of God senses them. Let me say it again. There are absolute moral norms. Now, go to Romans chapter 2 because there is a law written on our hearts and you can try to break it all you want to and you can try to get it to shut up to say, you're guilty, your conscience is accusing you, Romans 2. You can say, would you please shut up? Would you please shut up? Church, would you shut up? I don't want you to tell me I'm in sin, right? Church, you've got to, you've got to agree with my sin. You've got to, you can get the church to agree with your sin. There are plenty of churches that you can go to that will say whatever sin you're in, it's okay. But there's still something inside that is either accusing or excusing you and it is a law that is written on your heart and my heart that will not let us go. Again, again, there are absolute moral norms embedded in the universe and your soul made in the image of God senses them. We have no explanation for the mess that we're in. And folks, listen to me. Does anybody not believe the world's in a mess? We have no explanation for the mess that we are in and no hope of ever getting out of it apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The third thing this morning, the reality slash experience that you long for can only be satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the, the reality, I'm going from truth to reality because here's Thomas saying, I hear what you're saying and I hear your words, but I ain't going to believe it until I experience it. I'm not going to believe it until I experience it. And I'm telling you that the experience that you long for can only be satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that the, the, the gospel that we proclaim is not just information. And here's what I'm telling you. If you have just believed the right information, but you have not experienced the reality of Jesus Christ on a cellular level, in the depth of your being, in your heart and in your mind, you are not saved. So I could say, raise your hand, pray this prayer, mouth these words. Some people have raised their hand, bowed their head, and literally called upon the name of the Lord and been saved. I would never discount that. But some folks have raised their hand, bowed their head, said exactly what they were told, 
and they were given information and they regurgitated information, but never, nothing ever happened to change them in their interior world experientially. The gospel transforms us experientially. The spirit comes and lives in us. We have a new nature. We have a new life. We have a new mind. We have a new heart. We have a new family. We have the hope of eternal life. We have joy that transcends circumstances. I was saved as a teenager. And I have to be honest with you and tell you there, there, are t- there have been times that I've tried not to believe. Anybody ever been there? There have been times that I've doubted. And every time I've doubted, like doubting Thomas, and every time I've made a vow when I've been hurt, Jesus Christ came and ran me down. The fourth thing, why should I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The significance that you long for can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The significance that you long for can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for significance in entertainment, if you're looking for significance in accumulation, if you're looking for significance in pleasure, if you're looking for significance in everything going your way, if you're looking for significance in misery, and a lot of people look for significance in misery and victimhood, I want to tell you that there is more The, listen, listen to what I'm saying. The significance that you long for can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Well, why am I here? What difference does my life make? The, the, the significance that you long for. I, I, I got a, a, a text from a family member. They're a part of a church that's not in our state. And they said, pray for this family because there's a husband and a wife and two young girls and they are faithful members at our church. And they found the husband dead in the bathroom this morning, a young man probably in his 30s or 40s. They found him dead from an overdose. Some of you know Jay Foley. Debbie Debbie called me last week and said, Jay is dead. And we've learned over the week that it was something that was self-inflicted. And I, I led Jay to the Lord. I baptized him. But he tried to find his significance in something else that wasn't the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm I'm begging you this morning. Whatever it is that you think makes you you, there is nothing that makes you you that is more powerful and more significant and more meaningful and more necessary than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number five, the life that you were created for can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life that you were created for. I'm I'm telling you the way your brain works, the way your heart beats, the way the blood flows through, the way you're created biologically, the way you're created psychologically, the way you're created emotionally, the way you were created relationally, the way you were created socially. Everything about you was created, was created by God to experience life in Christ. And wherever it is that you're going to try to find life or whatever you're calling life is not life and it is not satisfying. And it's like somebody took a straw and they stuck it into your heart and it's just sucking whatever life you think you have right out of you. 
the life that you were created for can, be found, can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and then finally, the power that you desperately need can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power that you desperately need can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I've had several verses written out. Let me, let me just share um, a, a couple of them with you. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. This is the power that is moving toward us from Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that I might be made conformable to his death. It is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is available to you, that is available to me. And when it is his power that we operate out of, all of the glory goes to him. I would just ask you to take a breath. I've spoken quickly and said a lot, hopefully most of it from the text. And this is a pivotal, critical moment. I'm asking you as you sit here today at the core of your being to accept or reject the fact, the reality, the significance, the, significance, the power, and the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am appealing to you today to say, believe the gospel. I'm appealing to you today to say, Jesus is alive. Will you look in the empty tomb as John did? Will you turn and see him as Mary did? Will you this morning believe not because you can put your fingers in his palm or in the wound on his side, but not seeing believe? Would you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning? If he has defeated sin, he is alive. He is Lord and Savior and Master and King, and he is the lover of your soul. But if he is not alive... I'm an idiot for standing up here babbling and you're an even greater idiot for getting all dressed up to come in here and hear me this morning. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you're a regular partner here at South Point, here's what I would say to you. If, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Stop wasting your time. Either believe or stop wasting your time with church. If you are not a believer and you're here for the first time and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, I would invite you this morning to call on the name of the Lord. And let us together be a people who when we walk out into the community bear the aroma of life because that is what is desperately needed in Locust Grove, Georgia. And it is possible because Jesus is alive. One, two simple verses out of, out of Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe at the core of your being in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if you say yes, has your life been radically transformed? 
by the power of the resurrection. Every week we take bread and juice. What a great time to remember the death, the life, the soon return of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, I invite you to come and remember the Lord this morning. If you have believed in the resurrection for the first time, I would invite you to come and partake as we remember the Lord symbolically. I would encourage you to do it with reverence. I would encourage you to do it in solemnity. I would encourage you to do it with uh, great care. Be careful about it. It's a serious matter. This is, this is some, this is the, we're remembering the one that loves us. We're remembering the one that died for us. And so I invite you to come this morning. I'm going to pray. And if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you are saved, I invite you to come this morning and partake with us in this family meal. Father, we ask you to help us now in this moment. Do the work that only you can do in the hearts of men and women. Take the, the clarity of Scripture. Take the certainty of these people who staked their life and even gave their life because they were willing to say publicly, I believe that Jesus is alive. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All I have is Christ. He is my everything. He's alive. And I must proclaim Him. I pray that you would raise up a church that would be that kind of church. Father, for those that don't know you this morning, that maybe feel like they're filled with seven demons that feel like their life is defined by what they're not instead of who you are. I pray that they would turn and hear you call their name and that their hearts would melt. That they would see your love for them demonstrated and that they would fall in love with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.